Hello, and welcome to the Workplace Happiness Podcast. In upcoming episodes, we're going to be focusing on working from home. With more and more people working remotely, it's important to know how to work comfortably and efficiently from the comfort of your own home. The idea of flexible working options or working from remote locations has certainly been on the rise in recent years. In 2019, a survey found that 61% of global companies were offering some kind of remote working policies. It was also found that 80% of people would turn down a job that didn't have flexible working options when faced with two similar jobs to choose from. And now, the current global pandemic of COVID-19 has accelerated the need for businesses to accommodate home working where possible. In upcoming episodes, we'll be speaking to people about their working lives and how they're adapting to working from home. On this edition of the Workplace Happiness Podcast, I'm delighted to be talking to uh, Anne Franca, who, uh, as you may know, is the CEO of the Chartered Management Institute, but has held a host of senior executive positions with a uh, number of well-known household brands and names. So Anne, welcome to the podcast. I wonder if we could just start by talking about your childhood and um, your school and university and whether you ever thought that you would embark on a career that's been so successful uh, in executive management. Well, thank you, Mark. I'm delighted to be here and uh, right, childhood. Well, I was born in, you'll know by the accent, it's not uh, British. I was born in New Jersey. Um, I grew up there in a small leafy town called Mountain Lakes near New York. Um, and it was, um, it had very good schools. I was very lucky to uh, go to very good schools. Um, but, you know, it was a very homogeneous place. And I think one of the reasons I've had such an international career is, you know, there were 5,000 people they all looked very much like each other. And I was acutely aware um, that there was a big world out there. So I think one of the reasons I went for an international career is that I had such a grounded upbringing in a small town uh, like that. Um, I did go to university in the US. I went to um, Stanford um, undergrad and um, I studied Russian and political science. Um, And so again, you can see you know, this, this interest in foreign lands and languages. Um, I actually, on graduation, got a job, um, uh, which surprised everybody, um, including me, um, around the corner uh, in, Mount, in Mountain View, where now, obviously, all the tech companies have their headquarters, working for a small company that did East-West trade. And I got to go to Russia and use my Russian. I was amazed. Um, so there I was, you know, 21, and I was traveling back and forth between Russia and San Francisco. And this small company allowed me, in addition to doing, um, they did medical exhibitions. So in addition to doing that, they allowed me um, to run a small business for them, which was publishing a book um, that that I was going to go uh, uh, target. Uh, this is showing my age, the tourist to the 1980 Moscow Olympics, but that got boycotted and they were going to shut it down. And I said, no, let's reposition this as a business guide, an East-West trade guide between European and, 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 and um, Soviet companies. Um, and they went for it. So I was able to run this tiny little business, um, taking in ad sales, but also writing the book, being the publisher, um, as well as the commercial end. And I really enjoyed it. And I think that gave me a taste for business. Um, So when I then went to graduate school, um, um, I did spend a year in Germany first, but, um, um, and again, you'll see that international connection, but it made me think I really want to do business and journalism. And that's what I did. I did that at Columbia University um, after I did the book. Um, And then when I got my MBA, I realized that I really loved working in Europe and it was going to be very difficult for me to start out that way. I was interviewing with companies and they were saying, well, you know, you have to spend five years in, I don't know, Poughkeepsie, New York or Cincinnati, Ohio. And I thought, hmm, I don't really want to do that. So I got, I had gotten a grant from Columbia to go to Europe. I went to Europe and, and did that grant studying, um, you know, interviewing people about European media. Um, and then when the grant was over, um, 
you know, uh, uh, my dad rang me and said, right, I'm cutting you off now, enough money, get a job. And so <laughs> I did. <laughs> I rang a friend who was working at Procter & Gamble and said, hey, are there any jobs going? And guess what? There were. And that's where I, how I landed up in Procter & Gamble. It was um, realizing that I would never be able to pay my student loans with a journalist income and that I better get a, a decent job. So I started with P&G in Germany and spent um, 14 years there and had a wonderful, wonderful uh, time that I still uh, reflect very fondly on. And what, was um, your, and, and what was your first job at Procter & Gamble in Germany? Um, so I ran, um, and I wanted to do this, I wanted to go on a small entrepreneurial brand, uh, and it was, <laughs> I still remember it, it was, it was called Punica, and nobody really cared about it. Um, it was an acquisition um, uh, that they had made, not for, not for Punica, but for the larger brand. Uh, anyway, what it did, um, and this was kind of my first experience with consumer marketing, is um, it was a fruit, fruity drink that was mostly water um, and actually artificial sweetener. Um, and so it actually quenched thirst. And so it was, it was a fruity thirst quencher. We repositioned it as a fruity thirst quencher. So, you know, like um, colas, um, it quenched your thirst, but better than colas, it had fruit. Um, and that worked. And so that was very successful. And from that, um, I, um, I found my first sponsor who was, um, happened to be quite senior and um, really sponsored me off that success of that brand relaunch to run European Pampers as one of the first European Pampers brand managers. Um, and that was a great and stretching experience. And the thing about P&G at that time, I think it was quite a magical area. The company was doubling every five years. Um, you were working with lots of people that went on to be household names around the world. Um, you know, people like Fabrizio Freda and Art Becht and all sorts of, um, you know, Paul Pullman. Um, and and, and it, there was a culture that even when you were young, you were, they, it was devolved decision-making. So it was the brand manager culture where you actually did, um, you were the general manager of your brand and you got all that experience. And that was absolutely vital because not only did you learn certain tasks like marketing or you know, how to read a P&L, but you also vitally learn to manage and lead people, not just direct reports, but peers and people older than you. And I think that was absolutely, um, you know, essential for anchoring in me the importance of great management and leadership. And two questions for you. One, one is about what was it like to work in Germany? Did it feel very different to your experiences previously in America? And then the second question was about what lessons did you learn in those early days of managing people? Yeah, okay, great question. So I was lucky. Um, so I studied Russian, but I also um, spent time in Germany and I had studied German in high school. So I spoke German and all the more so because um, um, I was living in Germany, working at P&G and my Frank is a German name, my first husband, um, it's his name. I still use it. Um, and, and it was in a funny sort of way, the fact that I needed to work in another language, I think gave me more confidence because I could only say certain things, you know, I was pretty fluent, but I wasn't a native speaker. So I had to be quite direct in my communication. Um, I had to just stick to what I could say and what I wanted. And I think that really helped with the clarity of my communication. And I also think um, people really appreciated that here was this young American woman speaking German. So I was making an effort to do business on their terms, which is, as we know, very important in business, right? Um, so I think those things helped me. In terms of what I learned about managing people, so I, you know, I remember this was now, um, I was working on a big launch. It was the European launch of Always, which is a very big PNG product. And I was super stressed. You know, we were building 200 million pound factories and we were sampling 400 million consumers across Europe and the stakes were high. And, you know, I just kind of was 100% task focused. And every morning I would march into the office, past my team, 
go into my office, slam the door and start the day's work. And then occasionally I would open the door and say, I need you in here. And you know, in they would come and I would say, what's the status of this? Well, one day they came to me, all of them, and they came in and they sat down and they said, we need to talk to you. And I said, oh, okay. And they shut the door and then they said, look, you know, every day you walk in here head down, you never ask us how we are, you never say, how are we doing? You never ask us any personal questions. You know, you just kind of like bark orders at us and say, get in here and show me your work. And what are you doing on this task? And you know, that doesn't work for us. It's upsetting. It makes us feel like you don't value us. Wow, what an aha moment, you know? I thought, I realized, I thought, oh my God, they're right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is terrible. What am I doing? And it was a huge wake up call and a seminal moment for me where I just realized, you know, you absolutely have to value the people who work for you as people. So fortunately I changed my behavior, um, you know, being confronted that way. And um, we really started working together as people and I found out about them and we did lots of team building and, you know, I started treating them, uh, you know, as individuals and respecting their various strengths. And we actually went on to have a hugely successful launch um, and we became a great team and a really high performing team. And that, that lesson so stuck with me. Um, it's, I think it's vital. And to this day, when people are in bad management situations, um, you know, where they're working for a bad boss or a boss that's lost the plot, you know, or behaving like I was, I say, you know, go in as a group, right? Don't go in alone, go in as a team and confront your boss. Um, obviously, hugely successful career at P&G. Um, and then you, you moved. So yes. talk us through what you did next. Okay, so I had been at P&G 14 years. I was newly promoted to general manager. Um, the guy that promoted me was A.G. Laffley, who was also a sponsor. And I was, you know, delighted to be promoted, but um, the, the, the company was going through a tough time. And there was a lot of downsizing, you know, factory shutting, et cetera. Um, and at the same time, there were a lot of people. I just realized, you know, gosh, there are an awful lot, you know, I thought, oh, I'm a general manager. But then I looked around, there were so many other general managers and we weren't exactly, there were too many of us, to put bluntly. This happens in large organizations, right? So I thought, you know, I'm not sure I'm really going to be able to make much of a difference here. Because <laughs> there's an awful lot of us and there's not, you know, that much, we, we don't need all of us. So I got a very tempting offer from another company, uh, Mars, um, to be instead of one of 40, um, you know, on a 3 billion at that time business to be one of six. Um, so a, a much um, bigger role where I thought I could make a bigger impact running European pet care. Um, and I've always loved dogs and cats. And I always, I thought, well, you know, I've been here 14 years. Why not? Let's go for it. So, um, so I did. And I was at uh, two and a half years at Mars. And it was a very, at that time, very different culture and lots of lessons learned there. How was it different, Anne? How was the culture different at Mars to uh, Procter & Gamble? Well, I think what I would say is most large companies, and you'll know this, uh, Mark, from your time at um, Waitrose and, um, and the John Lewis Group, um, most large companies have a very unique culture. And it's very ingrained. And companies that have loyal employees, as P&G, Mars, and indeed John Lewis do, it's all the more so, right? So, and you have a lot of people who have been there a long time, and they've risen up through the ranks, and so they know the culture inside and out, and there are informal networks. And when you come in, and I was hired in at Mars at a very senior position as an outsider, as a woman, and as an American, albeit with lots of European experience, I was hired in by John Morris. And you know, um, that I was not, oops, sorry, we have a, it, it goes automatically, it's our doorbell. Um, Barry, can you take the dog upstairs? Cause I'm doing a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's our doggy. <laughs> she needed to go out. She may bark, you never know. She doesn't bark much. Um, um, anyway. Uh, you know, I was um, an outsider in that culture and I didn't fully appreciate that. So when you move from one very well-established culture to another, 
you know, you think you have an emotional bank account, but you don't, you're new and they've never seen you before. And all my other colleagues, most of them had been with the company for decades. They were all male. Um, you know, uh, they were very well networked and I was the odd one out. I was the outsider. And, um, and you know, that made it quite difficult. Plus, um, I didn't fully appreciate that I didn't have that emotional bank account and, and um, you know, probably came in um, um, too sure that, oh, I'll just do what I did at P&G and it'll be fine. Well, of course it wasn't fine at all. Mars was a very different culture. The decisions were made differently. And the other thing that was difficult at that time was, um, you know, I think it's, it's moved on a lot now, but it was, they had some working practices like um, travel on your own time where you left the house Sunday night and you weren't supposed to reappear till Friday afternoon. And I was a divorced single mom. And, you know, that kind of working practice was very difficult for me um, because I was responsible for Europe. I had 22 countries I was supposed to stay, you know, be gone all week. And when you're sharing custody of a child, you, you know, you would, you would never see that child. So um, there were things about the culture that just did not uh, work for me um, at the time. And um, so after two and a half years, I moved on um, and I went uh, to Boots, which um, I was the first um, female executive director at Boots um, and the first um, well, which is odd since it's an it was 150 years old at that time and 80% of the SKUs um, and the staff were aimed at women. Um, but you know, these things take time. Uh, but again, um, you know, that, that was a situation where the, there was a, a, a complete management change at the top, new chairman, new CEO. And so I had been hired by the outgoing chairman, an outgoing CEO. Well, you know, doesn't take much to guess what the new incoming CEO and chairman did. They said, sorry, but we don't need your role. Last in, first out. And, you know, so again, I, I learned through that experience. So lots of, lots of learnings. <laughs> so, so if you were advising somebody now who was going into a company like Mars or Boots that have got very strong cultures because of their longevity, what advice would you give them? Hmm. Well, first, um, make sure that the culture fits with you and your values. Okay. Um, that is so important. And, you know, however, um, um, tempting, um, the, you know, whatever the, 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 the sound of the job, the title, its content, or indeed the salary, however tempting all of that may be, uh, the status, whatever if the culture doesn't resonate with your values, you have, it's a red flag, red flag. And you need to listen to that. Um, how, how do you know that in advance before taking the job? Well, I think, um, I, I, I think you ask a lot of questions, you know, so, so, um, uh, and you, and you look at the um, assurances that you're given and you talk to a lot of people because obviously when companies are, in recruitment road, um, you know, they're gonna give you their best selves. Um, and you have to really find out for yourself, talk to as many people as possible. Um, and then um, um, look, you know, ask about the working practices because I think working practices and norms say a lot about a company. Um, so for example, at Mars, you know, um, the travel on the own time, leave the house on Sunday, come back Friday, at that time at Mars, everybody clocked in like factory workers, right? And look, it, Mars has a very, in many ways, it's a great company, it's incredibly resilient. It had been built up from a manufacturing culture. So the fact that the executives were asked to clock in meant that, you know, from the Mars culture, they were being treated equally to factory workers. So it was part of their non, their belief that, you know, everybody added value. Um, but obviously, if you are a working mother and you need flexibility, that's not going to fit for you, right? And although the people hiring me were like, oh, don't worry. Well, actually, I needed to worry because that was the culture and I couldn't commit to that culture. Um, and if I had asked the people what it was really like to work there and whether or not they observed that, I would have seen that, right? Now, I have to say, to be fair, Mars has moved on enormously. They no longer do that. You know, the Mars of 2020 is not the Mars I joined in 2000 or 1999. Um, and I do think though that 
um, in some small way, my experiences um, um, did encourage them to take a look at some of those practices. And, uh, and I know that the subsequent uh, CEO of Mars, um, who was there when I uh, was working there and with whom I had a, a good relationship, did quite a lot to address some of those things and make that culture more workable and more flexible um, and more accepting of outsiders. Um, so, so that's, I think you have to be very um, astute when you're making a job change to really assess that culture and say, does it resonate with my values? Do the working practices fit with how I want to work and how I need to work? Um, and if the answer to that is no, it really doesn't matter, you know, how great the salary or how great the title or you're going to struggle. Yeah. And, and you talked particularly about your time at P&G and having a number of mentors. So how important were mentors to you through this phase of your career? Well, I think in the, my early career, I had some great mentors. Um, and that really helped and expedited my career. I mean, I talked about getting promoted to the biggest brand from a tiny, small brand by one of those mentors or sponsors. Um, and, um, and, and then laterally getting promoted to general manager. I think when I left and went to um, you know, Mars and then subsequently Boots and, 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 uh, and Yale, one of the things was that I, in, within those companies, I actually did not have perhaps mentors or sponsors. Um, or I did actually at Mars, but they also left before I left. Um, so I think it's very important when you, you know, my other tip for going to a new place is get a sponsor as quickly as you can um, uh, and or a mentor, but find somebody that believes in you, right? And will, that, you know, has your back, that will advocate for you. Because when you are entering that new culture and changing into that new job, you know, you don't, you haven't demonstrated as you have perhaps by being somewhere for a decade or five years, what you can achieve over time, you're new. And people don't know you and they don't know, you know, the amazing things you've done somewhere else. <laughs> um, so, so they're not going to give you credit for that. You are starting from scratch. Um, um, so having people, cultivating people, whether they're peers or, or bosses, that you can go to and ask, how does this work around here? Am I doing that right? What advice would you give me is really important. And then from Boots, you went to Yale and you went there at a really interesting time, mm -hmm. uh, just as the, um, the internet and digital was taking off. Um, so, so talk to us about going to Yale and talk to us about managing through some of those challenges of uh, the new digital world that was awakening and how it impacted on that traditional business? Well, this is about disruption, right? And this is a case study in disruption, getting the better of a company. Um, and, uh, you know, and again, it's also um, a lesson in the willingness and ability of companies um, to change or not to change and the impact that has on their existence. Um, so, you know, again, this is a very common occurrence and we see this happening all the time. We see it happening until very, very, very recently, as you well know, in a lot of the retail sector, obviously now much of the retail sector, though not, not all of it, but the food retail sector is experiencing a big boom. But much of the retail sector is still struggling, is now struggling with disruption. Um, and Yell was struggling with disruption, right? So Yell did printed directories. Um, now, to be fair to Yell, it was the most operationally excellent printed directory company in the world, right? I mean, you know, it had the best operating model as a business and won many awards for that. The problem was that operating model didn't work anymore, right? It was being disrupted by new technologies like the internet, like mobile. And um, when you have been so successful running a certain operating model, and again, I was brought in, and I was the only female and I was an outsider as the change agent to lead into the new operating model. But guess what? You got people that have been extremely successful doing the old operating model. It's all they know. They've been doing it 25 years. It's worked fine. That's tough, right? <laughs> They're not going to just change overnight. They don't want to, uh, you know, it's, it, they've been perfectly successful. And I ran headlong into that, <laughs> that, um, 
you know, whether, whether you want to call it a brick wall or, you know, an iceberg or whatever. Um, and, uh, and it wasn't easy, but um, I completely, you know, again, with the benefit of hindsight, understand how difficult it was for them to change. But I just had a very different view of what the company needed to do and needed to do quickly because, you know, if you, if you looked at things, if you did the modeling, it was quite obvious um, that that was not a sustainable operating model. So um, I tried to advocate for changing it. I was not successful, so I agreed um, to leave. And, um, and again, you know, and indeed the company did um, go bankrupt um, because of that operating model. They did subsequently do all they could to try and change, but by then it had been too late. And so what, what advice would you give people who, who might find themselves in that position? They've gone to work for a, uh, a big name, a long established successful company, uh, change is coming quick. Um, and um, they're in the position you found yourself in, you're trying to persuade them to change, but um, they didn't really want to. Mm -hmm. With the benefit of the experience that you now have, what, what would you say to them? Honestly, what I would say to them is, um, Unless you're going in as the CEO, watch out. <laughs> because, you know, if the CEO of that, you know, if, if you're going to be the change agent, change comes from the top. It comes from the CEO. It comes from the board. And, you know, it, it's, if, if you have a new CEO and a new, you know, backed by a new board um, who really wants to change and wants to drive and lead that change, then then they are in that position to do that. But, you know, if you are brought in as the sole voice of let's change <laughs> and you don't have a leadership team 100% committed to that change, you're not going to change, right? And, and you will get caught out and it will be a very uncomfortable situation. Um, uh, and so that, that's the advice I would give. Like, be, again, what, you know, do do the CEO and the team, do they really truly want to change? And you have to interrogate that. And again, don't just, you know, take people's word for it. You have to look at the operational behaviors. You have to look at, you have to talk to people. Because in hindsight, I would have seen, I would have seen, of course, that the way everything was being run was simply not conducive to managing that huge change. Um, you know, the signs were there. So, um, and, I, and I don't think, you know, and this is again a warning, you, you know, you can't be the sole change agent, right? Changing organizational culture is so much bigger than one person. Um, and you need a tipping point. You need to get the tipping point of people behind you advocating for that change. And this is why, to be honest, and you will know this, so many of the large companies, you know, um, uh, struggle, right? And, and, and what some of them do, you know, is, is set up these very small arm's length divisions, right? That have nothing to do with the mothership to lead that disruptive change. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and indeed others just get disrupted by the new kids on the block because a lot of people say, well, rather than change these huge leviathans, I think I'll just go and start up something new. <laughs> um, so, so this is a real common occurrence, and it will—it's it, only accelerating, um, as you well, as you know, with all the um, digital disruption and the fourth industrial revolution. And so, after Yale, what what happened next then? What did you do next in your career? Well, Mark, um, I was—I have to say—after um, those experiences. I uh, took a sabbatical. I call it a, a family sabbatical, but you know, and I, 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 I've talked about this in, in the book, um, Create a Gender Balanced Workplace. I did what a lot of female senior execs do when they hit that glass ceiling or whatever. You know, I, I um, opted out. I just said, wow, I'm exhausted. <laughs> you know, uh, how did I end up here? <laughs> and I went to America. Um, you know, I had a 15 year old daughter. She was about to start her A levels, and I just thought, okay, um, 
maybe I'll show her America. I had a very ill father. I need a mother that needed help with him. So when we moved, I had a very understanding husband, my second husband. She's a good partner. Um, <laughs> one that backs your career, um, and um, which he does. And um, we, we moved to North Carolina and we took a career break. We sold our house and, you know, we just took a career break and we started a tiny business together. Um, headlong in the financial crisis of 2008, I have to say, um, with our own money. Um, that This will be familiar, maybe. You, you, I know you've started your own business. Um, but the, we started an internet-based business, um, and we quickly realized, I quickly realized, well, we realized two things. One, we were burning through a lot of cash because it was a financial crisis, and we couldn't afford to do that. Um, and two, I realized I did not like being a really tiny micro entrepreneur. You know, when you're an organizational animal like I had been for many years, I, I just found that difficult. So um, after three years, we, we decided I would go back to work and, um, and he would continue to run the business. And, um, and we really missed London. You know, it's a very global city. Um, it, you know, we missed traveling all over Europe as very commonplace. Um, activities and I had been out of the States even though working on global American owned businesses for 20 odd years um, I had not lived in the States and in the communities and I we found we missed London so we also we, we moved back to London but I also redirected my career um, and I realized um, that I wanted to do something with greater purpose so I went into social enterprise um, first at BSI and latterly as CEO of CMI um, and, and so I did what a lot of women do as well, which is pivot out of that corporate world, out of that commercial world to um, something with greater purpose um, that where they are more in control of their destinies and that resonates more with their values. And, and Anne, you've been a, a tremendous champion of, of gender equality in the workplace and you've written a book about that. Would you just like to tell us a bit about your book and um, the lessons that people can learn from it? Well, what I would say is, um, you know, I am an advocate for gender balance for two main reasons. One is my own personal experiences, which I've shared. And as I reflect, um, and a lot of women do this, and I think I advise a lot of women this, when I was in the throes of that first early move to the States after that series of corporate jobs that did not end well, I blamed myself. You know, I thought, oh gosh, it's me, I'm the problem. You know, why, how did I end up being, you know, I went from being this very successful, well-regarded high flyer at P&G to, you know, into the C-suite where, wow, I've struggled in these, in, in these various scenarios. Um, and when I look back with hindsight, I realize, you know, actually, it wasn't really all me, was it? You know, I was the first and only woman in each of those scenarios, in each of those very well-established but very male cultures. And, um, and that was as much of a problem as anything about my capability. And um, I realized in hindsight that maybe it really wasn't about me. It was about the cultures that had been created and their ability to accept me um, and, and accept indeed any, uh, you know, a female um, presence, bearing in mind that was um, uh, a long time ago, so 15, 20 years ago, and things have moved on. Um, but um, what I say to women is don't blame you. So this is the old, let's not fix the women, let's fix the culture argument. Um, and that is a real reason why I am a, a, very, a re very real advocate for gender balance. But the other reason is with my CMI hat on. You know, CMI advocates for best practices in management and leadership. And oh, guess what? You know, one of the best and easiest ways of getting best practices in management and leadership is to have gender balanced teams. They are proven to boost financial results. They are proven to improve cultures and, 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 and result in greater engagement um, and to um, help attract and retain talent and bond with customers. So there's so many business reasons uh, why this makes sense. It makes you better line managers when you have gender balance. So how, how did you find the process of writing the book, Anne? 
Well, um, I'm sat here at this dining room table. <laughs> this is very familiar to me because this is where I wrote most of the book. <laughs> um, yeah, so you you have to plan and be disciplined. Um, you know, you you uh, that's what I would do. I wrote it while I was still CEO of CMI, so lots of weekends, lots of nights, you know, lots of Saturdays, uh, sitting down here at ten o'clock, saying right five thousand words today, and you know, getting up at five o'clock, saying oh, I've done it. Um, yeah, you know, it's that it's that discipline, right? But obviously. Um, also, you start with a structure, right? I, I've found that very important. Start with a really good table of contents. And actually, in any project, I think that's important. You start with, you map out, even if you might change it, what am I trying to accomplish here? What are my main themes? How am I going to organize myself? And, um, and then you plan it you know, out in, in time chunks. You give yourself time in the week to, to get that done. Did you enjoy writing? It's, you know, I have a mixed relationship with it. I do like writing. All those years ago, I went to Columbia Journalism School as well as getting my MBA. So there's always been a writer in me somewhere. Um, but I, I, have a, I have a kind of a love-hate relationship with it. Um, you know, there are days when I'll be full flow thinking, oh, I can't wait to get this story out. And then there'll be days when I'm thinking, oh, I really just don't want to do this. And I waste time and I phone a friend and complain to them. And then, you know, eventually you just kind of get on with it. And, and Anne, let's talk a little about your, your work at CMI. So you've been the chief executive now for a number of years. Um, how's working for an organization like CMI different to all of those big corporate uh, roles that you had before? Well, CMI is a social enterprise. We're incredibly mission driven. Um, obviously we're much smaller. Uh, than the global companies that I used to work for. Uh, but in many ways, all of the lessons that I learned working in those companies have come, come to bear at CMI because we are all about best practices in management and leadership. And the reality is, um, if you know, most people still are promoted on the basis of functional expertise. So they are what we call accidental managers. Maybe they're great finance people or great salespeople. And so one day somebody says, congratulations, you know, you're now running the people and the money and the team. Good luck with that. And they don't train them. And that's a terrible position to be in. And CMI exists to fix that problem. So turn accidental managers into conscious leaders. Um, and so that purpose is amazing because if you think about it, we spend so much time in our working lives and the biggest impact on the success or our happiness in that working life is our line manager and um, you know how we are line managed, how we are treated. That example I gave about P&G um, in my early days is very relevant there. Um, so the line manager can make a huge difference not only to the, the productivity of an individual, but also the productivity of a team and the productivity of, uh, productivity of an organization. And of course, how good the line management is affects how successful, in many cases, the organization is and how and whether they will be able to sustain that success. And so CMI's work is incredibly important and it's even more important now where we're in a crisis where good, good leadership and management is, is an absolute imperative for many companies to be able to weather this crisis. And so if there's a, a manager listening to this podcast now who has risen through a functional uh, channel, uh, how, how can they get in touch with CMI and how do they... Um, start to uh, take on board the, the training uh, and advice that you offer? So I would say we're very easy to work with. Um, and during the COVID crisis, we're making a lot of materials just um, free to everybody on YouTube. And you can go to our website, um, uh, which uh, you can, we can put a link to, and you can certainly sign up for regular newsletters, which we're, we're giving um, all the time. I do a weekly broadcast on YouTube on a Friday. Um, we have lots of free resources, but what we also do 
is we work with over 130 universities, lots of private training providers and FE colleges. So you can do CMI qualifications through your employer or many other um, institutions that offer them. And you can get a CMI certificate. And if you do that um, and you have five years work experience, you can also become chartered. And a chartered manager, uh, we know that not, not only does that boost your productivity, because we measure that, um, it also, um, hopefully we'll get back to these better times, does also boost your income. And you become a better manager and leader. You boost your self-awareness and your self-confidence. So that chartered status is, is a very valuable thing to have, especially in uncertain times, because we all need to be our best the best we can be in managing and leading others through these times. So if I'm uh, say an accountant and I'm running a small accountancy practice, um, I'm mad busy and I don't have that much time, but I'm conscious that I haven't had the broad kind of uh, management type training and experience. What, what would you recommend for those people to do? So we do have um, a lot of online resources. Uh, we have something called Management Direct. It's free to all our members. Um, and uh, we were making certain elements of it free, like, you know, how to do flexible working um, at this time. Uh, but when you join CMI, you get access to this huge wealth of online materials. You can structure your own learning journeys and you can learn, you know, how do I manage change? How do I manage in a crisis? How do I lead remote teams? Um, you know, how do I have difficult conversations about mental health? All the things that we maybe need to be doing right now. Um, and uh, those are those resources are absolutely available to our members and you can structure them into learning journeys and um, do you know do your own career progression and your own continued learning and, and we're very big on that because everybody needs to learn we're all learning all the time I'm still learning and tell me is managing uh, a social enterprise different to managing uh, in a corporate a big corporate well, yes, and of course it is, but, um, but many of the practices still hold. But what I, what I would say about CMI is our commercial mission, because nobody, by the way, we earn our keep. So our commercial mission and our charitable mission are the same. By that, I mean, we sell um, the recognition and accreditation and best practices in management and leadership. That's how we earn our keep. And we do that through dual accreditation and through membership and through chartering people, right? Uh, but we're a charity. That's our charitable mission. It's to make people better managers and leaders. So, um, so, so our co commercial and charitable missions are the same. We do, of course, do not have any shareholders. Uh, we reinvest all of our profits in the delivery of our mission. Um, so, you know, everything that we make is put back into providing more resources, better resources, updating our resources and reaching more people um, with best practices in management and leadership. It's why CMI led the Trailblazer Apprenticeships um, that, with a group of employers because we felt it was our mission to do so. Um, and, you know, we don't own that IP, the government does, and any company can do a management and leadership apprenticeship, but we led the development of that because that's an example of us trying to keep standards updated of what is best practice. Um, so it, it, it is also very purpose-driven. Um, and of course, you know, it doesn't pay as well. Um, but I think what you find, certainly what I found is, and what I think people at CMI find is because you believe in the mission and you know that you're making a difference to individuals and organizations and you're very much driven by that purpose, um, you know, you're very, very motivated. And um, that, that can sometimes, um, you know, not be the case when, um, you, you know, you're, you're making something that maybe has less of a purpose. And I think it's why also for big companies, the ones that are able to successfully instill purpose and be run with purpose have the best um, longevity, right? So famously, you know, you talk about that Unilever did the sustainable living uh, plan and made their brands have a purpose. Um, you know, the John Lewis partnership, obviously John Lewis's purpose, make his employees happy. 
you know, those kinds of purpose-driven companies, I think, have um, a great deal of longevity, um, even in tough times. And, and we're talking, obviously, uh, now in extraordinary times uh, with COVID-19 uh, and uh, the lockdown. So, Anne, just tell us what your working day was like before the lockdown. Well, at CMI, we've always worked flexibly. So I was able to do that since I was a middle manager at P&G going through a tough divorce. Um, and so I learned how valuable it was just to be able to take my daughter to school. So we fit our work around our, our lives and that's everybody, not just me, the CEO. Um, so that means, you know, if I have something to do in the morning or indeed uh, others do, they can do that. Or if they have appointments for their kids or, or people they care for, or if they have hobbies, we're very respectful. So it's about focusing on outputs, not FaceTime. Therefore, we already did quite a bit of remote working at CMI. Um, so, uh, you know, for example, with my executive team, we have a remote call every Monday um, and everybody joins, you know, we're not physically present in an office. Um, so this adjustment has been somewhat easier, but it of course is still an adjustment. Um, my, my working day still looked like in many, many days I went into London in rush hour, um, spending enormous amounts of time on very crowded tubes <laughs> to go to an office, rush to a meeting, um, and then, you know, at home, going home, um, obviously um, having lots of meetings, um, not just with CMI people, but lots of external people, um, again, on crowded commutes. And of course, today, all meetings are done virtually, and um, that's a big change. Um, but I think some, and there is no commute, right? Which, of course, is one of the best things. If we look for silver linings, how about that for a silver lining, right? Especially for people in London, not to waste that hour commuting. And what we say at CMI is, take the hour that you would have spent commuting and, and, and invested in your own personal development, right? And that's another good reason to join CMI. You can use that hour to develop your managerial and leadership capabilities rather than sit on a very crowded train. <laughs> um, so it has been a change and it's a challenge to be virtually visible. The other thing that the big thing that's very important in these times is mental health, right? So of course, we all need to manage mental health. And if you look at the stats, um, you know, mental health is as prevalent um, a reason for absence for employers as physical health. That was true pre-crisis. Well, now it's even more true. So being aware that you have people working in extraordinary new circumstances that they're not used to, fearful for their own physical health, fearful for the health of those they love, fearful for their financial health and security and that of those they love, there's a lot of anxiety. So managers and leaders need to be much more acutely aware of the need to manage mental health. Um, and we just did a, 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 one of these free broadcasts on that. And keeping people happy at home is essential. And I know that um, we're going to do um, some, uh, some research with Engaging Works on that. And then um, I'm going to turn the tables and interview you about it. <laughs> That'll be fun. And, and tell me, obviously, you're quite an experienced home worker. What, what would be your three tips to people about how to be um, effective and efficient when working from home? Well, the first is um, have a routine. So get up, get dressed, don't sit in your jammies all day. <laughs> um, um, and that also means creating um, clear boundaries. Sometimes when you step away from the computer, I had one person who was, wasn't used to working from home say, oh my gosh, there's no boundaries, you know, from 6.30 a.m. when I wake up in bed till, you know, 11 p.m. when I'm turning out the lights, I'm on my computer. No, do not do that. Um, step away from the computer. Plan in breaks. Go outside, you know, if for your, your allowed exercise, observing always social distancing, but take mini breaks. Walk around your house when you're on conference calls. Don't just sit at the same place. Um, take breaks to see your family and organize your children or take your dog for a walk. That's really important. So have a structure and build breaks into that structure. The second thing I would say is be virtually visible. Use tools like this where you can still see people. Um, you know, this is Zoom, 
We could be on Google Hangout. We could be using FaceTime. Um, there are lots of tools available. Use them. Um, and, um, and, and I think the third thing that is so important, there's so much disappointment around today. You know, people have been working so hard on so many things that were just canceled, big events or big meetings or, um, you know, other plans. Um, plan in those little moments of joy. So what are they like? Things that, you know, I don't know, maybe you're having a team meeting and you say, hey, let's all start the meeting wearing a silly hat. Um, or what we did at CMI, so we did, one of my guys did that at CMI, but what we also did is we circulated pictures of our pets. And then on our Friday, we had a Friday, and this is the other thing, make sure you have hangouts, informal hangouts where you're updating people all the time. And one of those Friday hangouts at CMI, we circulated, um, all the pet pictures, um, you know, did a little slideshow and then had a little vote of, you know, the best work from home pet. And it was actually a dog wearing a tie. <laughs> it's cute. Um, so um, just plan in fun moments where people can let off steam. And those would be some of my um, top tips, along with being aware that, you know, people will not be at their best. You know, there is a lot of anxiety. So managing mental health is critical. And, and tell me, what, what for you is the, the, the worst thing about working from home? Well, you know, I think you have to be, um, you have to be able to screen things out, right? Because let's face it, um, the doorbell's going to ring, the dog's going to bark, the child is going to need something. Um, you know, your other half is going to be on the conference call at the same time. So you're going to have a lot of disturbance. The plumber, I was on a conference call yesterday with somebody, the, the plumber is building a bathroom next door. I'm like, I'm sorry, I cannot hear you. He's like, well, I'm sorry, I have to get my family bathroom done. <laughs> you know? So there's going to be those disturbances. And I think the better you are at screening them out and the more empathetic you are when others have to screen them out, you know, we're all human. So let's cut each other some slack because it's just, this is not business as usual. Um, and we just have to be mindful that we're all going to experience those distractions and disturbances. And so what's the best thing about working from home? No commute, honestly. And I think there are scientific studies around this and, um, well, at CMI, we know um, that one of the most stressful aspects is commuting. And one of the things that does hold back productivity is the commute, right? And so now we don't have to do that commute. And so that should enable all of us, especially if we invest that commuting time wisely, perhaps in doing something nice for ourselves, to be more productive at this very difficult time. And my, my last question for you, Anne, is um is there a piece of music that makes you feel happy when you hear it <laughs> oh there's so many pieces of music that make me feel happy um but i still love the wonderful wonderful harmonies um of, of um a, a band like crosby stills nash and young the acoustic harmonies i love that kind of stuff too so um so i think um there's there's lots of music that makes me happy and actually we we do work out at home i think that's the other really important thing is to stay fit and so we're always listening to the home gym workout from amazon music and there's lots of happy music on there <laughs> brilliant and thank you so much i know that the people listening to this will uh, have been so impressed with your career um uh, in huge corporates and your success there and then going uh, and running uh, a social enterprise like the Charter Management Institute. Thank you for your insights, and uh, we wish you every success in the future. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure, and thanks for the opportunity. Thank you for listening. And again, if you want to take control of your workplace happiness, go to engaging.works and take the free happiness survey. See you next time.